I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to the Mistome Museum of Mystery, Morbidity, and Mortality. This audio tour guide will be your constant companion in your journey through the unknown and surreal. As you approach our exhibits, the audio tour guide will provide you with information and insights into their nature and history. Do not attempt to interact or communicate with the exhibits. Do not attempt to interact or communicate with the audio tour guide. If you believe that the audio tour guide may be deviating from the intended tour program, please deposit your audio device in the nearest incinerator. While the staff here at the Mistome Museum of Mystery, Morbidity and Mortality do their absolute best to ensure the safety of all visitors. Accidents can happen. The museum is not liable for any injury, death, or toxoplasmosis that may occur during your visit. Enjoy your tour, and good luck. Well, I suppose we're finished, if you're really quite certain. Well, you can always reconsider the options there. It's just... I'm concerned you're not behaving logically here. Uh, excuse me. Sorry, I just wanted to talk about the, uh... Oh! Mother! You're back online! I I didn't realise... Uh... How are you? Oh, I'm I'm okay... <laughs> It's been a bit busy here while you've been in for repairs, but I think we're doing all right. So, are you all fixed up? Yes. Well, apparently we're finished here. Um, apparently? I've been able to repair the vast majority of the damage that was inflicted upon the clockwork mother. I handled it personally as a sort of... Well, it was the least I could do. However, the damage to her vocal array was catastrophic. It was effectively torn out during an encounter with... What was it, Mother? The manticore? Yes, well, unfortunately, as she was designed and built to, frankly, unique specifications, there's nothing I can do but completely replace the entire subsystem. But the Clockwork Mother has been quite opposed to the idea. Oh, why's that, Mother? Well, she doesn't like the idea that her voice will... Ma'am, sorry, but I was talking to Mother. Huh. So, Mother, why don't you want the repairs? Don't you want to be able to talk again? Oh, of course, that's... You wouldn't want a different voice. Yes, of course the new vocal array would sound different to the old one, but it would work just as well. If we had more recordings of her prior to the lockdown, we'd have been able to use a neural net to create a simulacrum of the old voice, but she's always been a bit quiet. Sorry, what was that, Mother? She said she's standing right there. Oh, well, I... Mother... Am I right in thinking this is about your daughter? You don't want her to wake up and find you sound completely different? Ah, I thought so. What's the matter? Are you concerned that she won't understand you, or...? Ah, 
Well said, Mother. Well, that actually does make some sense. Emotionally. Sort of a ship of Theseus situation, I suppose. Oh, don't get me started. That bloody ship is a never-ending pain in my... Excuse me. Well, Mother, it's your choice. You can do your job well enough without a voice and... Yes, that's it. Well, I have other work to be getting on with. Uh, The guide will catch you up on what's been happening while you are offline. Ah. Yes. Mother. We need to talk about security. The wrought iron symbol hanging from the wall before you has been described by many as possessing a sense of portent and, well, significance. Its shape is that of a rough, counterclockwise spiral. It should be a simple shape, and yet there is something about it that implies a greater complexity. Many art scholars have been driven mad trying to comprehend this spiral, how it can simultaneously be objectively simple, and yet somehow also ornate. And perhaps most confounding of all is the fact that each and every one of them became obsessed with a different aspect of the design, almost as if it was a different spiral to each of them. The only thing that every single person who lays eyes on it can agree on is that the spiral is contracting, not expanding. There is no possible way for this to be the case, as an inert spiral could be stated to be either expanding or contracting, depending on the perspective of the viewer. I'm told it's a, quote, glass-half-full thing, unquote, but I don't really understand that. Surely that depends on whether the glass is being filled or emptied. The spiral is... inert. And yet, every single person who has ever seen this particular spiral agrees that it is contracting. A curious artefact. However, the strange nature of the spiral is not the main focus of this exhibit. It is merely a curious detail to a story far grander and far stranger. The spiral does not exist for its own sake, but rather as a symbol a religious one. Or something like that. Museum researchers have been unable to find any trace of this religion's name, nor even any of the religion itself, apart from a single church. A small church in a small town that hung this spiral over its altar and promised great prosperity to its congregation. And, unlike many other religions, it delivered on that promise in a very definitive way. The town in question no longer exists, and may never have even had a name. It was one of those small collections of buildings that used to spring up on the frontier to meet a need, then slowly declined, as their reason for existence faded away, usually after making the people of the town a good sum of money. This particular town, however, was not quite so lucky. It was founded if such a word is even appropriate, quite early on in whatever expansionist rush it existed to support, possibly a gold rush or a land claim. And according to what the research department could find, it was located in an inopportune position to take full advantage of the situation. Shopkeepers and farriers and builders, 
along with an old preacher hoping to preserve the souls of those in this dangerous land, coalesced in this location and built up a modest settlement, expecting to make their fortune by supporting travellers and prospectors and all manner of passers-by. But the passers-by were far from as plentiful as they'd hoped. Apparently, a new, better pass had been discovered, and all of the traffic they had expected to see had been diverted that way, where a different group of opportunists were making the fortune that should have been theirs. Some of the townsfolk abandoned the settlement, cutting their losses and hoping that maybe next time things would work out in their favour. But for others, this was not an option. They had spent all their money moving out there, risking it all on what had, at the time, seemed like a sensible bet. And now they were stuck, in a town with no purpose and no future. For many years, the settlement lingered halfway between life and death, just enough people passing through to keep the remaining residents alive, but not enough for anything more than that. The only thing that kept hope alive among the few dozen people who remained was their church, and their faith that God would one day bring them prosperity and joy, and everything would be all right. And then, one day, the old preacher who had given sermons every week since the founding of the settlement died, and along with him, the last embers of hope in the hearts of the townsfolk. God himself, it seemed, had turned his back on them. And then, a new preacher arrived. A younger man than the old preacher who rode into town on a large covered wagon in the night and took up residence in the now-abandoned church. The very next day, he could be seen all over the single street that made up the town, going from building to building, making the acquaintance of the residents and inviting them to service that evening. The people were apprehensive at first. Once one has given in to despair, it can become almost a point of pride, and it's difficult to hope when one has been burned before. But nonetheless, that evening, the rickety old church was packed with worshippers, ready to be told that everything would be all right. And the young preacher did just that. He was far more energetic than the old preacher had been, striding back and forth before the crowd and proclaiming that God loved them, that God would deliver them the success and hope that they craved. It was more than just his youth, the townsfolk thought, that energised his speech so greatly. It was a genuinely held conviction. More than any other holy man they had ever seen, this preacher believed what he was saying. Over the course of a single evening, the people went from the absolute depths of despair to standing upright, shouting their faith to the rafters, proclaiming that they loved their God and believed that he would do right by them. And then, as the service came to a close, the new preacher drew his flock's attention to the symbol, wrought in iron, hanging above the altar from which he had proselytized to them. This, he claimed, was a symbol for the people there that night. Together, with some sacrifice and a lot of faith, they could cease to be disparate, struggling individuals and come together as one strong unit. He then passed around a small bowl and requested a tithe from each worshipper that had attended, a tithe that, he gently suggested, might be a little greater than those they had previously given. 
After all, the situation in town was dire, so a little might not be enough. There was some trepidation from some residents about a slick out-of-towner talking a big game and then asking for their money. But as they left the small church, the bowl was more full than it had ever been in all the years that the old preacher had lived in the town. The town and its people were most likely doomed after all. They had so little money that having a little less almost didn't make a difference. And it had been a really good service. Maybe they didn't actually believe that God was on their side and that things were going to get better, but for a little while, it was nice to pretend that they did. The next day, one of the few local vagabonds who hadn't moved on to greener pastures found a gold nugget the size of his fist just a few miles east of the town. Word quickly spread, and a few days later, the town's hotel, previously empty but for the rats, was fully booked by out-of-towners hoping to find their fortune at the newly discovered gold strike. At week's end, the church was filled even more than it had been for the previous service. Some were merely grateful that their prayers had seemingly been answered at long last, but others were curious, if not outright suspicious. How could it be that, after years of misery and strife and stagnation, things had turned around so suddenly? immediately after the new preacher's arrival. Some members of the congregation went so far as to insinuate that the preacher was a confidence trickster, that he had planted the gold so that it would be found and make all his big talk seem legitimate. But the preacher took this scrutiny in his stride, with a good-natured smile, and reassured his new flock that no, he was not a confidence trickster. This was merely the result of their renewed faith, and appropriate repayment for their generosity. Who could tell, he mused, what kind of recompense they might receive if they increased their generosity. Despite themselves, the people of the town gave even more than they had the week before, some going so far as to bankrupt themselves. Week on week, things in the town improved. More people arrived, and they brought with them more money. And, as a rule... People attract people, and money attracts money. The original townsfolk told the newcomers about the preacher and brought them along to his services, where they too donated to the coffers of the church, a feedback loop which led to greater and greater rewards. Steadily, the town began to grow, then thrive, as it grew beyond its humble origins to become a place where people could live, rather than just survive. Rumours spread across the land about this beacon of prosperity, a town where you could make your fortune. Not an uncommon rumour in such times, but there was more than a grain of truth to this one. Then, a year to the day since the preacher had first arrived, a prospector struck oil to the west of the town, a vast deposit that would make the town even richer than it had been before. There was no stopping them now. Even as the people of the town grew richer and richer, the preacher remained humble. He wandered throughout the growing streets every day, talking with people and counselling them on their problems, though the problems were usually far less significant than they had been in years past. He wore simple hessian robes and walked barefoot, and looked, for all the world, 
like the archetypical, penniless holy man. You would never know from looking at him that every week he was given greater and greater riches by the townspeople in exchange for prayers and good fortune. Because as the wealth of the town grew, so too did their tithes to the church. Every week he insisted, gently but firmly, that the tithe must be commensurate to the fortune given, and as the worshippers had been given great fortune, they were obligated to give richly in return. And for a time, they did. Every week they gave money and fine clothes and jewellery, whatever they could give, in return for their god's love. At first they gave out of desperation, then out of gratitude, then out of greed. But over the months as their fortunes grew, the people's pride grew too. And eventually they realised that they did not want to give away their riches any more. The richer they got, the more they were obliged to give away, and that chafed at them. They had earned their wealth. Why should they give it away? They had never had to give away so much to any other church in their lives. Why should the preacher profit so greatly from their hard work? Their love for him turned to resentment. As he preached every week in his ever-so-humble robe, he put on an air of humility and poverty, but everyone knew that he was hiding incredible wealth away in the church, just beyond the door to his ever-so-quaint private chambers. Eventually, the people decided that this would not continue. They confronted the preacher and told him that they would continue to attend his services, but they would not allow him to become more wealthy than them simply due to their generosity. Their tithes would be more reasonable from now on. A coin or two from each worshipper every week. Enough to support him, but not to make him rich. After all, it was unseemly for a holy man to be rich. The preacher was appalled, insisting that he did not see a penny of the wealth they donated. Each and every tithe was for God, not him. If they wanted to continue seeing God's favour, the townsfolk needed to continue to give a commensurate amount to the love that they had been shown. Researchers are unclear precisely what happened next. Certainly there was an altercation between the townsfolk and the preacher, but beyond that, well, people don't tend to keep accurate records of their own altercations with holy men. What is known is that Around this time, the town brought in a new holy man, and the preacher was never heard from again. The most likely scenario is that the preacher was simply driven from the town, as pious folk such as these would be reticent about killing a man of God, but we will never know for certain. What is known, however, is that the town's fortunes changed significantly in the months that followed. The oil wells, so filled with promise, went dry unexpectedly. The gold fields gave up only the barest hint of flake with no more nuggets to be found. Pestilence struck the town not long after, and the travellers who had been flocking there began to avoid the area entirely. Through it all, the townsfolk worshipped weakly and prayed harder than ever, but if their god had ever been listening, he was no longer. 
After a few months of this, the people increased their tithes to their previous exorbitant levels, then even further than they had been before. But apparently it wasn't enough. Within the year, everything they had built fell to ruin. Some speculated that the preacher had indeed been playing a confidence trick on them. He must have somehow engineered their good fortune, then stripped it away when they ceased giving him their money. Others, though, disagreed. The preacher had been honest all along. He had warned them that refusing to pay the tithes would lead to ruin, and ruin had come to them. They had turned their back on God, and they had nobody to blame but themselves. The true answer may lie somewhere in between, because some time after the preacher left, or was killed, and around the time that the town's fortunes began to turn, some less scrupulous residents broke into the private area of the church where the preacher had once lived in search of the valuables that had been donated, and found nothing but the humble possessions of a holy man. Clothes and supplies and nothing more. For a long time it was assumed that he must have been hiding it all along, or sending it away in secret. But then... Years later, when the town had fallen into ruin and all the people were long gone, some vagabonds stumbled upon the ruins of the town, and in that town, decayed and partially collapsed, they found the church, and in the church, they found the remains of the altar, beneath the wrought iron spiral that still hung from the rafters, and below the altar, they found a passage. It appeared to have been dug by hand and went deep into the earth, leading to an enormous underground cavern, previously unknown to the long-gone people of the long-dead town. The cavern was hundreds of feet long and wide, and empty, but for a few scattered coins on the ground, and some scraps of cloth. All along the ground and walls there were strange markings, as though something truly colossal had once lived in the cavern, nearly the size of the cavern itself. But whatever it was, it was gone now, though there was no way that something of that size could have escaped, or so the explorers thought at first, until they found it. At the far end of the cavern, sprawled out on the dirt, its twisted fingers clutching at a golden trinket just out of reach, Dishevelled and pathetic and dead. We do not know what the thing they found looked like. The men who found it ranted and raved for the rest of their lives about what they saw and yet never came close to making sense. They had never seen anything like it and so did not have the words to describe it and had been driven somewhat mad by the experience. After all, how could one possibly begin to describe the dead, starved body of a god? We'll stop here for a moment. Hawk, Vulture, you make a perimeter, swap out in ten. Yes, sir. Guide? Yes, sir. 
Make sure the museum knows that we are being followed. Observe everything that happens. If we don't make it, every piece of information you can pass on to the department could help out in future expeditions. Uh, How do you know we're being followed? I've been doing this a long time. I know what I'm doing. The others know what's going on. We just need to hold position for now and see if we can get a visual. Roger that. I've let the head of retrieval know. Good. How long has it been following us? Unclear. Sighted movement throughout the day. It's always back behind the trees before we can get a clear visual. It may have found us during the night. And why hasn't it attacked? It's likely waiting for an ideal ambush position. It knows the terrain, and we don't, which means we're at a big disadvantage. Best thing we can do is try to bunker down and turn the advantage in our favour. Okay, that sounds good. I was hoping we'd be able to break the tree line or find a bigger clearing, but this will have to do. We've got a slight elevation advantage and decent sight lines between the trees. Whatever it is, we should be able to see it coming. Good. You know what you're doing, don't you? It's pretty basic stuff. Find a defensible position, establish a perimeter, and make sure nothing gets inside it. And what if something is already inside that perimeter? Hold fire. Hold fire! Do not engage unless we are engaged. It's above us, in in the trees. I can see that. Quiet down. Does anyone have a clear visual? Above the squad, high up in the canopy above, a shape. A shadow that shifted with the elegance of a panther, the menace of a great white shark. Its mouth was far from small, and yet there still was not enough room for all its teeth, for its long and squirming tongue that was designed for a very different purpose than mere speech. The squad gripped their weapons tighter as- I said shut up! Hello up there! We mean you no harm! We do? Not another word out of you. We mean you no harm! You come into my forest, bearing instruments of death. Treading where you're not welcome, and yet you mean no harm. Is that right? We have specific orders that we will only defend ourselves. We are not here to attack, provoke, or destroy. In particular, we do not intend to kill intelligent beings such as yourself. Uh, oh, oh. Intelligent am I, so complimentary, and we've only just met. You flatter me. I simply mean that you can talk. You're you're not an animal. Is that truly the distinction? If I can speak, I'm not an animal. If I could not speak, would that... Make me one. I meant no offence, simply... And if I am one, I cannot be the other? I didn't mean to... And you, now that you see me, am I not both to your eyes? When you behold my form... Do I not strike you as beastly? The creature stood taller than any member of the team, and yet it was not bulky. Its body was sinew and gristle, a shaggy pelt clinging to its bones, but the skin beneath the fur had a shimmering, scale-like texture to it that- I swear to God! Sir, please back away. I do not want- Sir, sir- (laughs) 
I am a sir now. Never been a sir before. Like some fairy tale knight or a gentleman in a posh suit. We do not mean you trouble. Then what do you mean? What is it that you seek in my woods? Are you looking for someone, perchance? We... Yes, actually, why do you ask? It may be that I've seen someone come through these woods looked somewhat like yourselves. Strange clothes, save number of limbs, that sort of thing. That sound about right? Yes. We have come here for any sign that they might have come through here and, and to explore and learn more about this place. Oh, I see. I see. And tell me, have you found your friend? Seen any sign? No. We only arrived yesterday. We're still getting our bearings, learning to understand your forest. Oh, and what is your opinion of my forest? Is it verdant and lovely? Does it make your heart thaw to see a place of such beauty? Yes. Yes, it's... Certainly one of the more beautiful places we've seen. (laughs) You're quite the joker, aren't you? Just saying whatever you think I want to hear, so I don't rip you limb from limb. (laughs) Am I right? Yep, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) You're all right. What's your name there? You can call me Eagle. Eagle. Funny name that, isn't it? Yes. And that's Hawk, Falcon, Buzzard and Vulture. (laughs) Ah, I see. Be a terrible shame if somebody was to learn your real names now. Wouldn't it? Imagine what they could do. Yes. And what should we call you? (laughs) You can call me... Beast. Beast. Okay, then. And who else do you have with you? Excuse me? You were talking to someone just now, before I so rudely interrupted... You got an imaginary friend you'd like me to meet? Oh. Uh, we have something called uh, a guide with us. Uh, hello. I don't see it. Is it invisible? A ghost? That's a little complicated. Uh, let's just say it lives inside this little box here. And it's connected to the museum we work for. I see. (laughs) Well, not really. (laughs) What should I call you then? Ghost bird? I don't have a name. I'm just a guide. 
You're a guide, did you say? Are you leading these folks through my forest? Um, well, I'm not really that kind of guide. I'm a tour guide for the museum. It's kind of a long story. I tell stories about exhibits. You tell stories? I love a good story. Could you tell me a story, invisible friend? I'm not... I'm afraid we're here on important business. Oh, yes. You said you were looking for someone. Yes, and you said you might have seen them. Oh, yes. I do remember some folks who appeared a little while back. I kept my distance. They seemed to be in a bit of distress. There was one, though. They wandered off on their own toward the end. Then suddenly, all the other folks were... gone. Don't know what that was about. But I still catch a bit of that other one's scent from time to time. Oh, that could be the curator. Would you mind showing us which way they went? I'll do you one better there, my friend. Why don't I help you track your lost comrade down? I've got a pretty powerful sense of smell. I should be able to get a whiff of them without too much trouble and take you right to them. Oh, well, I'm not sure. What do you want in return? Oh, I'm a simple creature. I don't want for much. Except. Yes? I would love to hear a story or two from your invisible chum here along the way as a sort of favour in return for a favour. You see? I'm I'm not sure a I A favour feel... for a favour. Nothing more. Yes? Nothing more. Are you ready to head off right away? Oh, well, I do have a cake in the oven I ought to see to before we... (laughs) I'm just joking around. Nothing to do here but waste time. Let's go find your friend. Okay, then. Let's move out, people. Okay, here we go, then. Thank you for visiting the Mist Home Museum of Mystery, Morbidity and Mortality. We hope that you've enjoyed your visit and that you'll one day return in this life or the next. Please tell your friends about what a great time you had here, but don't tell them too much. If they're worthy, we'll find them. Stay safe out there. If you enjoy the Mist Home Museum of Mystery, Morbidity and Mortality, please consider supporting the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash domgilfoyle. You'll be helping to make sure the show keeps going, not just by supporting me, but also by giving money to go towards equipment, software and hiring actors. Patrons of all tiers get access to an ad-free feed and access to new episodes a week ahead of the main feed, and you'll also get access to some bonus content. Everyone who subscribes at $10 or higher will get to have their name read out at the end of the next episode that gets released. This episode's wonderful supporter is 
the Bell Dam. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe out there. The Mistow Museum of Mystery, Morbidity and Mortality is written, produced and performed by Dom Gilfoyle with the help of That's Not Canon Productions. This series was produced on Aboriginal land and we recognise the strength, resilience and enduring legacy of the Yagara and Turbal people of this land. If you'd like more Mistome, please subscribe and like the Facebook page where more content is occasionally posted and where you can get in touch with us. The following is an advertisement that helps support the show's continued existence. If you'd like to support it more directly, visit thatsnotcanon.com for more information. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.